very warm welcome to the Understanding Users podcast, brought to you by Researchable UX. It's great to have you with me. I'm your host, Mike Green. I'm a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be chatting to various digital experts who I've had the pleasure of working with in recent years. They're from various disciplines, including user research, UX design, development, and product management. And they'll even be a digital business owner or two. I'll be talking to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and what advice they may have for others getting into the field. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So sit back and enjoy. In this episode of Understanding Users, Nick talks about the incredible buoyancy of the current booming UX job market and the ever-growing demand for both product and service design roles. We discuss the dangers of being too purist in real-world UX projects and touch on some of the challenges posed by IR35 legislation. We also reminisce about conducting experiments to blow up magnesium in chemistry classes at school and their surprising parallels with UX portfolios. Finally, he plays my three-card challenge to share his favourite UX tool, favourite technique and a trend he sees in the future. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. So my guest this time is Nick Grantham. Uh, Nick is Associate Director of Zebra People, uh, a specialist digital and UX recruiter based in London. Uh, And he's also a friend and a neighbour of mine in our little village in rural northwest Essex. Um, It's great to have you on the show, Nick. Great to be here, Mike. Really great to be here. Thanks for asking. So tell us, Nick, a little bit about kind of your role and about Zebra People, the kind of work you do and how you operate, the kind of clients you have. Sure. So I mean, Zebra People are a digitally focused recruitment company. So we, we cover a range of uh, roles from UX designers and service designers, et cetera, through to developers and, um, and UI designers. Um, and uh, yeah, we've been around for God, about 15 or 18 years now, I think. Uh, I, I myself have been there for three and a half years or so, uh, but I've been in UX recruitment for about 13 and a half years now. Um, one of the old dogs <laughs> these days. Um, but yeah, we, we are a specialist agency um, and, and UX is, is really one of our, our, our key areas, our strong areas. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, so I, I'm in charge of a few people there and some training. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're good, uh, we're good crew. We're not the biggest, um, but we are quite sort of, I know people use that term family feel quite a lot, but we genuinely, genuinely do have that sort of, um, that feel about us and, uh, and that excellent commitment to, to knowing our, our craft, so to speak, and, and knowing our sectors and hopefully not going in the, uh, the cowboy category that so many other recruiters are, are in. And tell tell me a little bit about the kind of clients you have. Yeah, we've got a really wide range. So we've got lots within the public sector. We've got government clients, um, you know, like the Ministry of Justice, for example. I think I probably tried to tap you up about them a couple of times. Um, through <laughs> to the startups, you know, the fintechs, the big ones, the small ones, the ones backed by Russian oligarchs and the other ones that are still working out someone's garage, um, through to uh, charities and, and, and big name brands. Um, as well as agencies, uh, you know, digital agencies, ad agencies. Uh, so it really is a, a widespread um, of clients that we, we work with both on a, on a contract and permanent basis. And we're talking now in January 2022. I still can't believe it's the year 2022. Um, what's the UX job market like at the moment? It, it's, it's 
bonkers to be honest um we i would say in, in 2000 i keep missing a year but i think it was 2020 was probably one of our worst years for a while because i think everyone just stopped you know we'd have days where we'd have another client closing their doors another client pausing the job hunt uh, understandably you know people go on furlough including myself um and uh and then going into and then by the end of 2020 we, we're seeing you know you know resurgence in the market and then and then by the time we went into 2020 it had absolutely boomed you know we, we always knew that out of all the sectors to come back digital was going to be one of them but we probably didn't expect it to come back as strong as it did so you know so the supply and demand is hugely in the, the candidates favor and, and that remained throughout the whole of 2020 and then going into this year it looks to be just the same so it's a really it's a great time to be um, looking for a job. It's 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 a harder time if you're a client looking for people to join you or even retain people because you know people are getting approached left, right, and centre. Um, so um, don't get me wrong; it's it's a it's a better market to to be a recruiter in compared to um, one which is um, you know very client driven um, and you're constantly having to find new business compared to find candidates. Um, but um, but it's still not it's still pretty tough. But but last year was good, um, and this year will, will hopefully also be good. Um, but it's very very candidate driven at the moment. Mm. And and what particular kinds of skill sets and experiences are um, clients looking for in the candidates? Well, it varies. I would say the mid to senior range is the most popular, um, and uh, you know so we're looking for someone who's very hands on. Um, I mean, I, I'd pretty much say any any level aside from juniors, unfortunately, um, any level is in, in demand right now. But yeah, probably the most popular is that mid to senior, maybe mid to lead level. And that's where clients are looking for someone who can still be very happy well, is still very hands on with uh, deliverables, whether they're a researcher, designer, what have you, um, potentially some management or some leadership skill to be able to at least lead a project, if not lead a team. Uh, but most of all have that autonomy. I think especially where we've got so much more um, working from home going on, clients want that confidence to know that someone can be cracking on with things behind their, their, their screen at home just as much as they are in the office. And obviously with a few more years under their belt or a bit more experience under their belt, uh, I think clients can feel they have that, that confidence in order to, to, to allow that person to just do what they need to do. Um, so, so yeah, so autonomy, hands-on ability, ability to, to lead on, on certain projects where needed, if not lead, help lead a team or help mentor more uh, junior junior members. Um, and obviously, yeah, bring some bring some expertise to, to, to the practice. And, um, you know, I think sometimes clients will look for more of a T-shaped type of profile where they've got a particular specialism but still able to touch on other areas. But I think a lot of that depends on the size of the team and size of the client. You know, some of the bigger clients, some of the bigger teams, they, they don't need as much of a, a breadth of uh, a breadth of experience. They really need that specialism, whereas perhaps a startup or just a smaller team um, will want someone who uh, can do it, can wear a few different hats. But then again, I think sometimes that will, will, vary, will, will depend on the, the maturity, let's say the UX maturity of that client as well. Hmm. And you say it's a very candidate-driven market, and, and we, you touched on a little bit there what clients are looking for. I'm interested, what are, what are candidates looking for, and how's that kind of changed as a result of the pandemic? So from a candidate's point of view, I would say, uh, you know, obviously cash is, cash is up there. I think with the, 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 the how candidate-driven the market is, 
people know they can make a potentially significant amount more, uh, be it in a contract role um, or in a new permanent position. So obviously, I think some of the expectations have, have risen quite a lot. Um, sometimes realistically, sometimes not realistically. Um, but then also the working from home factor um, has been a, been a big thing. You know, pre-COVID, um, if someone wanted to work uh, a five-day week but work, work one day from home, yeah, probably be probably be okay. If it was more than that, there'd be a question mark. And now I would say it's more from the, the, the candidate sense. You know, if they want to come in more than one or two days a week, that, that's a question mark for them to answer because, you know, they've got the power now and, um, and uh, you know, it means that they've got a wider spread of options available to them as well because they don't have as much travel to think about. But equally, uh, it means that recruiters and clients can also consider a wider pool of candidates because there's, you know, there's more people open to uh, potentially coming in one day a week or, or even one day a month or even fully remote, um, you know, which is which is good news for them um, and, and guys like myself as well. So, so yeah, remote working is, is obviously well up there. Um, and um, but in terms of, you know, I think I think, you know, if we look at an average sort of remote working setup and we look at sort of the average earnings, I would say past that, you know, it's that product focus, which is probably a real driver for a lot of the candidates that I speak to, um, you know, really wanting to to work on something that is um, seen and they can see tangible changes from and, and not just doing sort of website optimization. You know, not, not many people, I guess, want to do that. Um, but but also being able to be part of something and see it develop and and not just be doing little bits here and bits of marketing stuff for, for, for websites and stuff. Um, but, yeah, really being able to be either be part of a brand, um, which is producing great work or being part of something smaller, but they've got a really great product or really great service. Um, and then past that, I think it depends on where they are in their career. So perhaps someone more junior or more midway might want to go somewhere where they've they've got a bigger team, where they can really upskill and, and develop with. Um, whereas perhaps someone who's more on the other, more, more at that sort of lead level, perhaps they want to go into a head off position and manage a team. Um, or perhaps just go somewhere where they've got a lot more influence um, on, on what happens with the product and, and the direction of, uh, of design. That's really interesting. And you talked about kind of the importance of remote working and how kind of uh, location agnostic uh, working is kind of a benefit to candidates. What about the kind of international perspective? Are the candidates from overseas who are able to kind of apply for jobs in the UK working for UK UK based organisations? It's a a funny one, that one, because you would think that, especially with Brexit and the candidate short market we've got, you would think that there'd be a lot more clients who are open to, to sponsorship. But I'm, I'm still finding it's it's not hugely better than any other year. Um, so there's still a, a massive preference for people who are UK based, e- even if it's fully remote, they would still like that person to be UK based, I guess, for occasions where they had a, a meeting or a workshop and they, they really wanted someone to come in just on that occasion. You know, it might be once a quarter, but be open to that. And, and actually, you think that would be open to that would be fine for European um candidates as well but but there is a reluctance there to go down the sponsorship route um i guess there's some admin that goes with it um and some costs that goes with it 
but I personally think it would be it, it makes sense to, to open it up a little bit more. You know, the cost isn't that huge compared to what you might have to pay for a UK based candidate, especially in today's market. Um, but I think, you know, I, I'm obviously only covering a, a, a smaller portion of clients and most of our clients are, tend to be London based. So I guess, you know, with, with people with some um, some other clients who have got international teams, then then perhaps that's, that is more that has opened up more. But um, I haven't seen it as much myself with the clients that I'm dealing with. Right. And um, the, the spectre, if I can call it that, of IR35 hangs over. <laughs> sort of contract roles as we're all familiar with um for those who well for those who aren't familiar with IR35 kind of could you just explain a little bit about what it is and how it kind of impacts the work you do and the kind of placement of candidates sure yeah so so it's a government legislation um you'll probably know more about this than I do Mike but government legislation that essentially makes it uh that much tougher to verify yourself as outside of the of the full-time employment status that that company has, so I think that, you know just making sure that if you're if you're genuinely an outsider by a 35 contractor that you are not working um, in a in a similar sort of everyday setup scenario compared to a, a full-time worker at that company, and also reaping the benefits of a much bigger tax break. Um, so there, it's it's a lot of the contracts have gone inside R35 as a result, where those contractors are paying pretty much the same rate of tax as a permanent employee um, because their work is deemed to be or their their work environment uh, and setup is deemed to be almost identical to a permanent employee so why should they get the tax break uh, if they most of the time they, they still earn more because they're on a, a day rate compared to a, um, a salary so the take-home is, is is typically more than what a full-time employee would get on a on a permanent salary but it's not as much as an outside r35 contractor where they have a much bigger tax break um, and uh, and yeah so it, it, it when it first rolled out Obviously, it was rolled out in the public sector and then rolled out into the private sector. Um, what was that last year? I keep, as I say, I keep missing a year. Um, and it was really bad timing with, uh, in fact, two years ago. So it was really bad timing with COVID as well. Um, but uh, and and lots of jobs went inside R35, you know, converted to to inside R35. Lots of contractors went to went to permanent roles because the money difference wasn't wasn't so big there, um, and there were fewer roles around. I think around that time. There's a lot of sort of paranoia, I think, probably from clients not wanting to get stung by HMRC. Um, so they just automatically dropped their, their contract roles and went straight to permanent hires. But I would say since last year, that has been making some big changes and, and there's been a lot more outside of our 35 contracts coming through to the point now where it's getting quite difficult to find people. I mean, it's difficult to find anyone for any job, even the local Witherspoons is struggling to find staff, let alone people for you know high tech roles. But um, but yeah, it, it's the 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 outside of our 35 contract market has made a real comeback, um, which has put a lot of strain on the inside market. But typically, there are still some which will you know some some clients where their their contracts will will always. I think from here on for a good while be inside R35, i.e. a lot of the government contracts or some with the big corporates. Mm. I, I think the phrase I've often seen is um, or heard is uh, disguised employee. And that's why HMRC kind of are coming after people who are, as you say, using the 
tax status of being a contractor mm. to reap the benefits of that but at the same time actually working essentially like employees yeah. but it's a it's a it's a sort of yeah it kind of as you say it, it hangs over the whole market yeah. and, and if you get it wrong and hmrc think you've got it wrong then there's that's it and no, i get penalties. that and i agree with it you know I, I i think you know if they are a disguised employee then then absolutely yeah should be paying a high rate of tax um you know i myself is a, a permanent employee so i have to pay that amount of tax and i'm working just as hard um however uh, as a recruiter, it's a real pain in the ass because, you know, we have to get certain administrative things off the client before we can work a role. Um, and, you know, the SDS checks, the status determination statements that the clients have to do uh, via the government website, they can be a bit tricky. I know that people are you know, working out loopholes or going via consultancies to get around it. But you'd be surprised. You know, I've done a, a, a sort of few dummy runs myself and you'd be surprised by how much, um, how many uh, scenarios still end up as inside R35 when in actual fact I don't think they, they should have done so I think I, I agree with the concept but I, I, I think um, I think there's got to, there needs to be a bit more fine-tuning to make it truly fair as mm-hmm. to, in terms of deeming what is truly inside out, out uh, inside and outside R35 but it, you know it's a complicated beast I'm sure yeah yeah and, and just going back to the, the kind of candidate driven nature of the market. So in the course of this series, I've spoken to a service designer, uh, a UX designer, a user researcher. I, I'm interested to know kind of from your perspective, are there particular types of roles that are in more in demand at the moment? Uh, kind of the things that clients yeah. are looking for, skill sets that clients are looking for. That's an interesting, I, I would say, you know, this product design title um I'd say that's really swept the nation the last poor three four years maybe um and i i feel like for a long while you know we had let's say let's take the ux designer and that was you know up there in the sort of things to things to be if you wanted to be a uh, sort of digital designer because a lot of ux designers got paid really well or they got paid more than let's say a ui designer um and they perhaps went a bit more into uh or did do go into to more depth um, and then there was this wave, and, and they still exist now. They still got their purposes of, of UX UI designers, and, um, and and obviously these candidates, these these designers, um, had a bit of a blend between the two profiles. Typically, they would come from a more visual background and have progressed into UI design status, and then they would probably get involved with utilising a little bit more research, and then sort of tagging on UX onto their CV and saying, right, well, I've done a bit of wireframing, I've done a bit of guerrilla research, therefore. You know, I'm, I'm, talk, I'm, I'm talking very generally here, obviously, I call myself a UI UX designer. And for a while, I feel like in the market, these were almost seen as the poor relation to a UX designer. And most UI UX designers or UX UI designers wanted to become a UX designer. Again, very generally speaking. Um, and I feel like, you know, we sort of uh, joked about this, uh, this unicorn um, candidate and how it, it wasn't, you know, they didn't exist basically, because you couldn't be a true expert by covering so many, you know, wearing so many different hats. Um, and I, I know myself, you know, if, if someone came to me applying for a UX job um, and they had all this UI work in their portfolio and UX UI mentioned on their CV, it would put me off. And now I find myself going back to candidates and say, you know, UX candidates and say, right, tell me about your UI experience. You know, can you show some more in your portfolio? Tell me, you know, about, you know, where you've utilized that. Um, and, and and I feel that so the UX UI role is almost evolved into this 
product designer position, this sort of all singing, all dancing designer. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so unicorns do exist, it seems. And, and I think, you know, obviously being a bit facetious here, but I think um, it, the levels of the, the ability will, will obviously depend on that, that individual. Um, and some probably can truly call themselves a product, an end-to-end -end product designer and truly can uh, come in at discovery stages and facilitate research as well as use research. And then go on to 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 do the the design the, the visual design work as well. Off the back of that, this is again this is just my theory or you know recruitment ramblings. But off the back of that, I feel that user research has really gone up more. Whatever you might feel about product designers and UX UI designers, I feel like the silver lining is almost like that realization that user research is still this really important thing that is needed. And so the user research market, I think, has almost had a bit of a boost off the back of the product design market, overtaking a number of UX design roles out there, if that makes sense. Um, and then since COVID, uh, well, well, it's all since COVID, um, I feel like service design has also witnessed a big growth um, due to the nature of how companies have had to sort of change and operate since COVID. So, um, so it's, all, it's all had a bit of a boost, but I think the one that's probably um gone down a bit is, is actually the ux design roles there's still plenty out there and if you are ux designer then do get in touch i've still got loads but in just comparison to this product design um title that's out there now that's that's fascinating and and as a user researcher with my user research hat on that warms my heart to hear the uh, the importance being placed on uh, user research by organizations because uh, i think what's interesting and, and challenging about this whole ux world is is exactly some of the issues with terminology and nomenclature of of role types and as you say kind of the roles have evolved over time and 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 sometimes uh, you know i've seen jobs advertised that it, it's quite clear that um perhaps the the client or the kind of re recruiting company doesn't really understand what it is they're recruiting for. You know, people slap UX, UI, um, research, service design, product design, because they're sort of sexy terms. But it's actually kind of, do you un really understand what that involves? That, that's it. And, and I think I th that's it. And I think someone who's in a hiring position or if they're a, a recruiter who hasn't had the right training, you know, if someone comes along um, and they're more UI focused or more visually focused, they're, they're going to have a more... The, the, not all the time, but they are. They could generally have a more engaging and nice to look at portfolio, which could make that hiring personal recruiter feel like they are better, just purely based on that. Um, and, and and this is a massive, massive generalisation. But sometimes when you've got the the more analytical type of profile out there who can really get under the skin of thing and really do a deep level of research and and, and know all these great um, UX methodologies compared to someone who is much more creative, sometimes that type of personality, um, the creative personality, can come across a bit better in an interview scenario. Again, massive generalization, but you know, with those two things and a, and a, and a client or a recruiter who's not UX mature and not really knowing what they're looking for or listening for, I could probably see how that more creative type of profile gets through to that final stage or gets through to that offer stage compared to the more analytical type of persona whose portfolio is technically correct and it's got all the right methodologies in there, but it's not showing you know really high fidelity, um, you know, cool visuals, for example. You know, um, so um, so yeah, that that's that's sort of my. Um, 
conspiracy theory where I think lots of, you know, we've had years of, of uh, you know, UI designers who are calling themselves UX designers because of various different reasons, um, landing some of these big UX roles. Um, and and I, I, you know, I, I've seen it myself where I've spoken to some of these candidates. I thought, you know what, I, I don't think you're the right person, not put them forward. And then I've, I've you know, linked in with them and, and seen their job update. And lo and behold, they've become, you know, a UX designer, you know, sometimes the same client that I decided not to put them forward to. And it's just like, what the hell? Um, so, so yeah. Um, you mentioned UX portfolios there. And I'm interested to know kind of what your, as a recruiter, kind of what your view is on, on, the power of those the benefits of those and what are the kind of do's and don'ts for candidates or you know mm. ux workers in general in terms of kind of what to include or not to include or how to frame it yeah well i mean it's a it's an ongoing subject and everyone bangs on about the process and i know i've you know done articles and talks on this before and it's always a thing um and and yeah indeed it is the process but i think if we if we turn it back a little bit i remember again i've been doing ux recruitment now for 13 and a half years and i remember when i first started uh, well, for a start, most of the, a lot of the UX designers now were, were you know, we were looking at information ar- information architects. Uh, when was the last time you saw a brief for an information architect? But um, but yeah, lots of IAs, and a lot of the time, uh, client they were you know clients weren't even looking at portfolios. I think I don't think a lot of clients necessarily always knew what they were looking for. So I thought, right, that's the IA UX guy or girl let, or, or person. Let's get them in, and they can do the. The wireframing stuff over there, uh, and then come to us. And then over the years, that the, as I think more people have started to realise what they're looking for and the benefits of it, that the portfolio has grown to the point now where even user researchers are creating portfolios. Um, so I think depending on your skill set, that will depend on what what to show in your your portfolio. But the key thing, yeah, it is the process. Yeah. You know, being able to show that start to finish. Um, you know, from from low, you know, from concepting stage through to low fidelity stuff, through to testing and research, mm-hmm. through to high fidelity stuff and results and summary. Um, but but also the validation throughout, the the reasoning throughout. So you're not just you've not just got this cookie cutter portfolio like so many of the uh, the online courses uh, are, are known for. Um, but you know you can put your own reasoning in there to say what well, this is the reason I did this because of X Y Z and really prove um, that you know what you're talking about. You know I always say the CV should show where you work and the portfolio should show how you work and it's that how that will define what type of designer you are, for example, or what type of researcher you are. Um, that that's my opinion on it. And I often think um, of a, uh, a scenario with with portfolios or case studies. Um, thinking back to my school days and if you've heard this anywhere else they've nicked it from me but uh, in school let's say you're in chemistry and chemistry class and you're gonna you know you're gonna burn magnesium I know in my school in our exercise books we'd have to write up the experiment so we'd start off with an introduction you know today we're gonna burn magnesium and find out xyz and then you might and then a hypothesis I think it's gonna you know explode when it gets lit and then a diagram of the apparatus and then you'd have your results uh, and your summary and the conclusion. And I often think if you have a similar sort of format to your portfolio, whether it's research, service design, um, following that sort of format where you can really talk the reader through your portfolio step by step, mix it up with some visuals and annotations so it, it's easily digestible and it's engaging. It's not just pages of, of text or pages of visuals with no context. Um, so you can, you're, you're telling that story, you're walking the, the reader through then I feel like 
even if that person wasn't a, any, you know, a, a head of UX or UX, whatever, if they were just, you know, the cleaner who'd happen to go into that room and look through your portfolio, I feel that it should be done in such a way that that person, whoever they are, will understand what's been, what the problem was, how you solve, you know, how you solved it, and, and why you went about solving it in that way, and then what what the result was. I'm just smiling, smiling as you're talking, remembering that those classes of burning magnesium at school. And it was always very exciting, wasn't it? That, that yeah, particular that was, bit of chemistry. That's probably why I remember it. It's like one of the best ex- experiments uh, done. But yeah, that may be uh, filling a balloon with hydrogen and lighting it. But, um... but, but going back to what you were saying, I, I really like that kind of dichotomy, the kind of where you work as your CV and then kind of portfolio of how you work. And it's that thing. And I, I've talked about this with other guests on the show about kind of show you're working. It's kind of explain... And in the case of kind of delivering work to, to clients or stakeholders, it's showing how you got to where you got to. Um, and it's the same, I guess, when you're selling yourself to to potential client or to potential. So one analogy that I'll, I'll, uh, I'll use, because I know you, you, you UX guys love analogies, um, was done by my director, Ben Clarfelt at Zebra People. And I think we've got this mention on our website where he thinks of portfolios uh, like a maths equation. And again, harking back to our school days where you would get one point for showing the correct answer, but you'd get two points for showing the workings out. Um, and again, I think that's a good one to keep in mind when doing a portfolio. Uh, I think some people can get too carried away with just putting image after image uh, with no context and it doesn't really tell the, the reader that much uh, about them uh, or the project. Uh, and some can put you know, war and peace on there and I can just guarantee you it, it's not going to get read if, if it's just reams and reams of text. So yeah, mix it up a little bit, I think, and, uh, and, and yeah, show the process and, and explain your, uh, your reasons for it. And you, you mentioned earlier how it's very much a kind of m- mid to senior weighted market at the moment. I'm interested for, for people coming into user experience or kind of more juniors in their roles, what, um, what kind of attributes and experience and skills do you think candidates should be looking to develop? Um, I think confidence, you know, being able to, you know, go into something and, and, and try and take the reins with it, but also um, not overconfidence to the point where you get cocky. You know, I think that they, they, they'd have to be some humility there um, and willingness to, to develop themselves and learn, which, you know, to be fair, most people do. Um, but I think being able to, to, to come in and I'm not going to use hit the ground running because it's a really overused term, especially in recruitment. <laughs> but, but come in and, and you know, if you say you're a UX designer, you know your process, then come in and be able to really do that and and, you know, and come in and, and handle the user research, know what to do with it, understand that there's different methodologies there. You might not necessarily know every single one, but that's why you're with senior level rather than lead or head of. And that's fine. Um, know how to sort of adapt to it and and take on these new methodologies um, and while still churning out, you know, the wireframes and the prototypes and generating personas and go through these flows, all those core deliverables. Um, but, but being able to work well with your team and not just your immediate team, whether that's a big or small UX team, um, but, you know, perhaps working in a cross-functional team where you're dealing with developers and project managers and various different stakeholders, I think... I think UX, especially sometimes where you are in a company, they perhaps don't have as much as much UX maturity as you might you might prefer. Um, if you are good at being able to explain things and and taking away all the UX jargon and just be able to explain to, you know, for example, a finance director or 
uh, if you work in an agency, you know, one of your clients and say, look, this is why we have to spend X amount of time and X amount of money doing research um, because the end result, we will do this with the research and this is going to be the end result, which is going to, you know, add to your profit margin and do all these wonderful things for you. Um, but if you're someone who gets too, um, what's the word, offended or, you know, or, or confused or uh, throw your toys out the pram when things don't go, you know, Jacob Nielsen's Bible way of doing things, it's a very hard pill for that for, for teams and clients to swallow sometimes um, because, you know, you might learn one way of doing things in a particular company or in a course or via a book, um, but it's quite rare that that textbook way of doing things will always come into light in, in, a, in a live project. So I think being able to be adaptable and still and pragmatic, that's the word I'm looking for. I think if you're someone who can say, right, guys, this is how we should do it and this is why we should do it this way um, and explain that in a, in a way that doesn't rely on jargon and it, and it can sort of, it's easy for non-UX folks to, to understand and digest and accept, you know, and, you, and, and it takes a certain personality to be able to, communicate that sometimes as well um, but be pragmatic enough to be able to say right okay when when there's only there really is only x amount of budget or x amount of time or x amount of resources to be able to do it that perfect way of doing it um, if you're someone who can then say okay well let, let's, let's let's just do the best we can um, I'm going to flag these points uh, and if they can't be corrected then we'll just do the best we can and I think sometimes you know especially in, in the contract world you know, I've had a lot of, you know, contractors who've been let go early because they've become uh, quite um, prickly or, or quite uh, difficult to work with when things haven't gone in the exact way they should have gone, um, according to, you know, the UX Bible. I, I think that's absolutely spot on. And yeah, the, as you say, adaptability and flexibility and, and not being too purist about things because mm -hmm. with the best will in the world, you, you know, you can put together a plan, um, but plans are, you know... <laughs> aspirations as much as they are certainly when they're created um exactly. yeah and, and things change and and uh, and certainly as you say you know as contractors we, we're, we're not in a position to start throwing our weight around in the sense that uh, yeah i mean sometimes as contracts you perhaps you are paid to, to to flag something you know with your expertise but then that's at the same time you you probably paid a little bit more to, to know when to just put your head down and crack on um but you know i think that yeah the, the purest point of view you know that's great for for LinkedIn posts, but um, but sometimes in a real live work scenario, it, it's good to have that in your mind. But it, it it can't always be done that way. Just you know, depending on who's paying the bills at the end of the day. What about the future, Nick? Just thinking about we've talked about how buoyant the UX market is at the moment, um, which is which is great, obviously for for, for all of us involved and, and and very encouraging. Over the next few years, um, how do you see the market developing um and how will that kind of impact the kind of work you do i personally think we'll we'll see more more service design roles um again just due to to how companies have, have had to change and adapt since covid um but i also feel like in some other countries service design is, is bigger than it is here and it's almost like you know it's almost like seeing how ux has evolved i feel like the same thing will happen with service design as more and more companies you know omni-channel companies especially start to realize the value in, in improving their service design and overall customer experience. Um, uh, I think UX will, will still be there. I think the product design title is going to keep going um, and user research, again, keep growing. I guess one 
one concern I have is with the amount of money being thrown around or, or titles being thrown around people to either retain them in companies or to attract them, I do slightly worry about the future leadership within design and UX, um, you know, where people are getting fast-tracked into leadership positions, um, but perhaps haven't really had the time to earn their stripes. Um, I just wonder what, how, that, how those leaders will fare and how those teams who report to those leaders will fare in, you know, a, a few short years to come. Um, because, you know, I'm seeing it a lot at the moment where people are applying for roles uh, and they're telling me they want, you know, X amount of money. And I'm just thinking, God, where did you get that figure from? You know, I did not expect them to, to tell me they're looking for, you know, 80K in, or 70K and they've got, you know, three years experience. You know, it, it won't be another year on and they'll probably be working in a head off position. They've had like four years experience. So, uh, and again, it, it's not always down to the years of experience and it's to do with the quality of experience and the projects you've worked on, but you, you kind of get where I'm com coming from. Um, and but I'm seeing it a lot. I, I'm seeing it ha happen quite a lot, and um, and it kind of needs to happen in some cases because the market is so tight and so competitive. But um, but it is it, it is something that 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 stays in my head a little bit with uh, with all this sort of career fast tracking to either retain or attract the right people. That yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? As you say, yeah, it it, it degrades the kind of. Uh, market generally or it risks having a negative impact if, if people are sort of pushed above their actual ability of you know level and experience that's it that's so. it you know there's a lot of focus and it will this will sound funny coming from a recruiter but there's just perhaps too much focus on on money and egos um and uh and and yeah it's going to have that sort of um dilution effects perhaps within the market you know we, we've seen the market become massively saturated haven't we and i think with any you know when, when something gets massively saturated there's a certain amount of dilution that will happen as well um so um and and yeah you know some of the figures being thrown at some of the, the, the people in the market at the moment um is is a bit crazy but i you know i think some of that is actually uh, at fault uh, from uh, from from recruiters maybe as well you know i can imagine if you're if you're a midweight candidate and you're getting hammered with roles by recruiters, whether they be internal recruiters or external recruiters, and perhaps they're not specialists, uh, and perhaps they've just seen that you've mentioned UX or product design or user research in your, your CV um, uh, or your LinkedIn profile, and they're hitting you with a lead level position, uh, 20K more than what you're on at the moment. You know, if you, you know, guys like me probably wouldn't do that, hopefully wouldn't do that, but lots of other recruiters would, then after you, you you know you've been hammered you know how many times a day how many times a week by all these roles that are paying 20k more than what you're on at the moment and and offering you really uh, a good title after a while i probably wouldn't blame you for thinking well actually maybe my market value is 20k more than what i'm on at the moment maybe i should be working in the lead position um so uh so yeah i think that also needs to to improve and probably contributes a little bit to to some of the inflated expectations of um, of some candidates in the market at the moment so what should um ux designers researchers service designers bear in mind when they're looking to change roles or progress let's say in their career yeah i would say you know really think about what is important for you you know yeah of course you know money's up there but I, I, the saying I often use is, use is take a job thinking of your next job, right? Um, and 
because these days, you know, no one stays at their job until retirement where they get their, you know, their gold carriage clock at the end of it. You know, this doesn't happen. <laughs> I would say two, three years is probably considered a long time in digital these days. Um, so, you know, you could go on to your next job. Um, and I think, you know, how is that the learning you get, the projects that you're going to be working on, the stuff that you're going to be able to put in your portfolio as a result of that, the, the how you see, you know, the name or the, the sort of description of work that you're going to be able to put in your CV. How is that going to affect getting that next job? You know, and it might be that you take your next job and it's not your dream job, but you're doing it to get your dream job, if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, really think about, you know, what are you going to get from this next role aside from, you know, another day working from home, aside from, you know, 5K added onto your salary or whatever it might be. You know, that's all important stuff. Don't get me wrong. Um, but you're going to get that pretty much wherever you go right so so past that what are you going to get from this company and don't be too swayed by a big name brand you know I've seen plenty of people go in and work for big name brands and it looks great on the CV but actually the work they've been doing have, have has been pretty sort of business as usual stuff it hasn't been that groundbreaking because the brand hasn't really needed it or they've got a much bigger team sometimes there's just as much value or more value going to work for a startup or a small team where you have a whole lot more influence um, on the product or the direction of design or research, um, and or or it's with a, a a small company but they've got a big team and you can really learn from them. And and also worth bearing in mind, you know, who are you going to be shoulder to shoulder with every day, or you know, be it virtually or in person? You know, who are these people? Who are your peers going to be? Most of all, I I always say go with your gut. Uh, I feel like I've got a lot of sayings, but I do. People sort of sometimes think of your gut instinct as this sort of off-the-cuff um, thought, but I, I, I personally feel like your gut is made up of a lot of collective experience, and you should give it a lot more credit than, than some people do. So, yeah, if it doesn't feel right, don't get hounded into it by a, a pushy recruiter or, you know, another few grand added onto the salary. Um, you know, really think about it. If your gut isn't in it, then uh, you know, in this market, you don't even need to risk it. Right. Last thing uh, is the three card challenge, Nick. So I've got three cards here. I've got a heart, a spade and a diamond. And on the back of each is a different. So one is a trend, one is a technique and one is a tool. Um, so I'm going to get you just to choose a card first. I'm going to go with the, the spade. Okay. Please. So the spade is technique. Technique. So tell me about a, a UX technique that you let's say applaud or you find particularly powerful or that something that you think that uh, candidates perhaps should UX. practice okay. um let's have a think let's have a think um i i I'd probably i'd probably go back to to that sort of pragmatic attitude to be honest with you. you you know i think i think soft skills generally i know it's been brought up by a few people but soft skills can get a bit um uh overlooked at, at times um, and I think definitely worth bearing in mind from a hiring perspective, you know, not just concentrating too much on years of experience, but, you know, higher on the potential just as much as you might hire on the experience, obviously, depending on the level to a degree as well. Um, but, but yeah, having that, um, that ability to be pragmatic, to be flexible, um, whilst at the same time, you know, still, still producing really, you know, high quality work built, you know, based on solid uh research or, or or practice um yeah I, i've I'm, over the years I, i've i've spoken and, and met and, and placed lots of different types of people um let's not just call them ux design and service design different types of people right um 
and uh, and some of them are brilliant at, at what they do. They really know their stuff. Um, but you know, in certain scenarios, they can become quite awkward to to work with quite quickly if things don't go their way. Um, and I think sometimes um, that type of person, that type of practitioner. Um, when they're a real, you know, expert and they really know what to do, and they're just given carte blanche, free range to to do things the way they want to do it, that person can can be phenomenal. They could be brilliant at it, uh, and you'll know this as well, Mike. Lots of times that scenario it, it just doesn't happen, um, and I I think sometimes if you've got all that knowledge and ability, and you can still be adaptable when need be and be sort of pragmatic when need be, um, yeah, for me that's a real solid. That's someone that I, I like that's that for me that's a regular person that, especially if they're a contractor someone who I'll, I'll always keep in my sort of a team and be like right they're they're not too much for a grenade beware ruffling feathers <laughs> go on then two uh, more cards diamond, please diamond is trend okay well I like well we we talked before about you know the product design title um, and how that's sort of taken over quite a lot what would have been UX uh, design jobs before um, I. I, I think we'll probably see or I have started seeing some of those UX designers who have no interest or no ability in UI um, and, you know, they might stay going looking at other UX design jobs, UX architect jobs. Um, but I've seen quite a few going more down the research route um, or going down the service design route um, and, and sort of fulfilling their, their UX ambitions uh, through those avenues. Um, and it's almost like, I, again, sort of 10 years back or, or, or less than that maybe, I remember you'd see UX UI designers wanting to become um, UX designers um, and some UX designers having their noses put out of joint by all these new newbies getting involved with their sector. Um, and, and, and also some of the some of the sort of scandalous things that might have been put on CVs for, for people to call themselves a UX designer because they might have done a wireframe, they might have done a bit of guerrilla research, whatever. But now I'm also finding a lot of UX designers and user researchers going into service design and calling themselves service designers because they worked on a project end to end, um, and uh, and and so yeah, it's funny to see that that trend now happening to a degree. Um, whereas once it, you know people were really doing their best to get into UX, and now I'm finding UXs doing their best to go into to service design, uh, and again sort of using some of those tactics to. Uh, to, to validate themselves as a service designer, where in actual fact, yes, there is some service design elements to what they've done, um, but they are not a service, uh, you know, bona fide service designer. So that's perhaps an interesting one. Okay, and then last one is a heart, and that is a tool. Now, whether that be a UX tool or a tool that you use day to day in your work, what, what would I mean, you pick? For, for, for me, uh, the, uh, LinkedIn is, is my go-to um, I, I'm hardly ever on, on the job boards while well, I'm not on the job boards. LinkedIn is my tool of choice. LinkedIn emails and phone, obviously. Um, from um, I mean, from a UX's point of view, I guess it's that's. I don't know if that's really me to, to answer that one, and it really varies as to again what type of UXer or designer you are, or researcher you are. Um, I've seen obviously seen a, a big boom in, in all the different types of prototyping tools and apps and, and stuff to use. Again, back in the day, it was basically OmniGraph or, or Exure. Um, and now, you know, obviously there's Sketch and Envision. And I can't remember last time I saw OmniGraph full mentioned on any, any briefs, but. So, yeah, there's, that, that's, that's really increased, I think, hasn't it? The, the different tools um, that can be used by you guys. 
but for myself, yeah, LinkedIn, um, the, the phone and, uh, and emails, really. Um, so, yeah, be interesting to know what some of you guys prefer in terms of a contact method. But, again, I guess that will, will vary quite a lot per person. Um, Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much for, for giving your time to, to kind of share your wisdom uh, of the UX job market and your own experiences. And, uh, yeah, lots of, lots of useful stuff to ponder there. And uh, long may you, you, you keep busy and uh, placing, placing candidates and, and keeping clients happy. And hopefully some, some of it was uh, insightful to a degree, but I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Understanding Users podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening and feel free to share it more widely. Join me again next time when I'll be talking to Frances Maxwell from Skyscanner, who styles herself very deliberately as a human-centered software engineer. I can't wait to chat to her about that. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centered.